Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a documentary podcast about video games and the video game industry, as they were in the past and how they came to be the way they are today. My name is Richard Moss, and this is episode 16, Sega Rally Championship. Virtual Motorsport didn't often drift over to the roads less travelled back before Sega Research and Development Division AM3 turned its attention to rally cars back in the mid-90s. The genre had done Formula One and motorcycle racing again and again, going back almost to the beginning of video games. And it had done loads of sports car racing, even street racing. But off-road was a rarity, and this was apparently not from neglect. In Japan, AM3's senior staff once told Edge magazine that rally games were considered taboo. They lacked the excitement that virtual racing needed, the reasoning went, especially for a busy, noisy arcade. At least until AM3 went and changed everything. The fact that Sega Rally Championship would come to stand out, to set new benchmarks and forever alter the racing genre, it wasn't something that happened by accident. Development began in the shadow of hit games Daytona USA, which had been developed by their sister studio AM2, and Namco's Ridge Racer, both cutting-edge arcade racers at the time, with a fast-growing reputation as two of the greatest racing games ever made. Maybe even two of the greatest games ever made. And AM3 wanted to take these, and then put a new spin on them, to outdo them, to outshine and outmaneuver and outrace them with an even cooler competitive racing game. Rally racing, that oft-neglected branch of high-octane vehicular action, it seemed like it had the right ingredients. But in order to give arcade gamers the sense that they were really sliding their car sideways around a muddy bend at 150 kilometers an hour, AM3 had a big task ahead of them. Daytona was about raw speed, just barreling down the straights and then hitting the corners hard without crashing into any other cars. And Ridge Racer was about style, about drifting around the bends almost like you were floating on them. But Sega Rally needed to have more of a grit to it. Because that's what rallying is all about. You've got loose gravel and mud and dirt shooting up around you as you wrestle with the steering wheel, even just to keep the car on a straight road. And you're desperate to stay on that road. Because if you go more than a few inches off the edge, you're liable to find yourself wrapped around a tree trunk. Or stuck in a ditch. Or if you really badly mess things up, maybe flying off the side of a mountain. The AM3 team didn't get off to the best start either. None of them had ever driven a rally car before. So they asked two of the most experienced rally car manufacturers, Toyota and Lancia, for help with getting it right. Both companies said no, even though they'd given the all-clear for their cars to be reproduced in-game. And to jump ahead in the story for just a moment, they did eventually have a change of heart and offer their assistance, but that wouldn't happen until late in the project's development. And this left the crew at AM3 on their own, at least initially, in trying to figure out how to replicate the experience of driving a real rally vehicle. Or two vehicles, actually. A Toyota Celica and a Lancia Delta. 
These two vehicles were apparently selected because the team thought they'd look good as polygonal models, and because they had great brand recognition among rally fans. The 1994 World Rally Championship Drivers' Champion had driven a Celica GT4, as had the previous two champions, and the one before those, one in the Lancia. Although Lancia had, I should note by this time, slipped back to the lower tiers of the manufacturer's championship after being dominant in the 1980s. Producer Tetsuya Mizuguchi also snuck in a third car as an unlockable in the form of a super-fast 1970s Lancia Stratos, one of the most successful rally cars of all time, which could totally blitz the other cars in speed, but had only rear-wheel drive, and so became a beast to handle on corners. Rally racing is traditionally done in legs. You drive a huge, non-looping track from point A to B to C to D in stages over the course of a few days or a week. Then you do the same again in a totally different place. AM3 couldn't possibly replicate this experience in full, so instead they designed their three tracks plus a fourth hidden one, to imitate the ever-changing conditions of real rallies by tying each one to a theme, the desert, forest, mountains, and for the hidden one, a lakeside drive. And to get around to the complexity of roadside conditions in real-world rallying, they lined the edge of each track with various sorts of barriers, like safety rails, stone walls, and trees. Plus, at times, some impressively varied and quite detailed buildings and roadside spectators. Their inspiration for the tracks came largely from their own driving experiences. Mizuguchi, in what strikes me as a foreshadowing move for his later nightclub-inspired synesthesia game Res, drew on his memories of driving around Death Valley and Yosemite National Park in California for his designs of the first two stages the desert and forest tracks. And the third stage, which is set in the mountains, came later in development, courtesy of director and chief graphic designer Kenji Sasaki, whose previous project had been Namco's Ridge Racer. So one day he went on a drive into some real-world mountains in his own car to try to remind himself why driving could be fun, because he wasn't feeling it anymore. And he returned so exhilarated that he knew they had to do something with mountain roads in Sega Rally. The team's adventures proved to be more than mere inspiration. The in-game engine sounds for the Lancia Delta were recorded by Mizuguchi with his own car, while the road textures, the dirt and mud and gravel and asphalt and everything, they were pulled from camera footage they grabbed on a road trip. Mizuguchi also rented out a racing circuit and got the programmers to sit alongside professional drivers so that they'd get a feel for the experience of driving at high speed and drifting around the corners. This make-it-up-as-we-go approach to Segarelli's creation could have gone horribly wrong. But even before the game was finished, press given the chance to try it out new. It was on the way to being something very special. In a preview article written a few months before its release, Edge magazine called the game's driving mightily impressive and the rally environment totally engaging. Owing 
in part to the variety inherent in a stage-by-stage rally format, especially as compared to doing laps around Daytona USA's repetitive oval tracks. Daytona also being a game, they noted, that seems lacking alongside Sega Rally's extra transparency effects and improved steering and cabinet feedback. And speaking of the cabinet, this physical feedback would become critical to the game's success in the arcades. Sega Rally cabinets included something they called an active shock generator, which moves and rattles the seats and the steering wheel in concert with the virtual car on screen so that you feel the jolt of a crash or of a landing after a jump, and maybe even with a little added imagination, the g-force of taking a sharp corner at speed. The final game came with two modes. A solo practice mode with just you and the track, and a tournament mode where you raced against up to three human opponents seated in the adjacent cabinets, or 15 AI-controlled cars riding on predetermined paths. And when I say predetermined, I mean literally they would drive exactly the same way every time. Whereas in the traditional rally format, cars compete on time alone, with staggered starts to minimise the likelihood that they'll encounter each other on the track. Here in Sega Rally, they all started together, kind of Grand Prix style, in a pure race to the finish no doubt to make the competition more exciting, and probably also to lend it more of a familiarity to people who aren't rally fans. In either mode, as was the norm in arcade racing games, players who dilly-dallied or struggled to stay in control would find themselves quickly staring at a game over screen. Because your time began counting down right from the start. Remember, this is an arcade game, so you had to pay each time you played. And even on the relatively easy desert stage, You weren't given a huge amount of leeway. You had to keep hitting the checkpoints in regular fashion to keep replenishing the timer, or you'd face the gut-wrenching sight of the finish line right there ahead as your car slowed to a stop because the countdown timer had run down to zero. Critics loved it. Next Gen Magazine said the off-road racer took the most exhilarating elements from Daytona and put them into a smooth, rocking, super-challenging game that brought back memories of the early arcade racer OutRun. They also loved the obstructive, dirt-spraying helicopter that flies down low to distract players and looks amazing. And the realistic sound design, which includes squealing tyres and scraping metal against rock, and even a co-driver who, in true rally fashion, advises you what kind of turn is up ahead. An easy right or a hairpin left or whatever. And they saw the hard-to-master steering as a refreshing change for the genre. Though they complained, as tends to happen with games that use licensed cars, about the impossibility of either damaging or flipping a car in the game no matter how recklessly you drive. Because anyone who's played a burnout game knows that there is a lot of joy to be had in crashing a virtual car and watching the bits fall off. Others fell in love with the dynamism of the track design, with the way that you change from one surface type to another multiple times in each stage, with significant handling changes each time. 
And the way the roads are full of bumps and jumps and sudden hairpin turns and other hazards that keep you on the edge of your seat. Sega Rally Championship would go on to become Sega's most successful arcade game ever from a sales perspective. But it didn't stay only in the arcades. It got ports and sequels galore. Five games, by my count, spread across ten platforms. I won't go into the sequels here except to say that they're all worth a closer look if you're into the genre. But I will quickly touch on the first home conversion for Sega's 32-bit console, the Saturn, which put the game head-to-head with the PlayStation conversion of Ridge Racer, two of the most popular arcade games, one against the other, repping their console. Saturn fans hoped it would give them a leg up in the console wars, and for a while it looked like it might. British magazine CVG said that Sega had accomplished the unthinkable by actually making the Saturn conversion better than the groundbreaking arcade original. Thanks to new features like a time attack mode, some new camera angles, cart tune-up options, and graphics and sound that were almost on par with the arcade. They weren't alone. Saturn-focused magazines were also really glowing in their praise, as were Edge and Game Informer, and I would guess probably others too, but those are the ones I found. And players loved it too. Nearly 20 years later, retro gamer readers voted it by far and away the best Sega Saturn game ever. It earned more than the second and third ranked choices combined, and many wrote in to say that they believe it's the best rally game they've ever played. One even saying it's the best rally game they ever will play. But it wasn't to be for Sega. None of its big three arcade conversions, not this, nor Virtual Fighter 2, nor Virtual Cop, despite the quality of the ports, could save the Saturn from obscurity outside Japan and disappointment in its home country. And with the Saturn's downfall came a fading in fortune for both Sega and its exemplary rally franchise, which only ever really suited Sega's uniquely frantic, adrenaline-chasing style of game design. And which, like many other Sega games, birthed in the arcade, but never really seemed to feel at home on a a Nintendo or a Sony or a Microsoft console. But that said, even as today Sega Rally sits on kind of the edge of oblivion, mostly forgotten by the gaming masses, some eight years beyond its most recent release, which was actually a home conversion of an arcade game that's now 11 years old, Despite this, I'd say its legacy is strong and clear. You see it in nearly every racing game on the market, to some extent. You see it in the Dirt Rally series, of course, but also in the Forza games and the crew and Project Cars. It's in that careful blend of speed and realism, of the fantasy versus the reality of driving really, really fast and knowing it and feeling it in your whole body that you're always a single decision a split second away from losing control of the car and the race. 
For a title so obviously rooted in the fast action and shoot-from-the-hip style of traditional arcade gaming, I think it's kind of ironic that Sega Rally's greatest legacy may lie in its simulation. It wasn't the first racing game to really truly place its player-controlled vehicles in their world, but it was probably the first one to do this while crossing over into the mainstream. It was probably the first one to, to really strive for that balance, to try to be real, but also to embrace the fantasy. And when I say real, I mean things like the physics going on underneath your driving, where your car reacts to your input, would actually depend on the physical calculations, the mathematics of the different components of your car interacting with the road beneath it. Roads, they would have friction, and that friction would change dramatically as you switched between surfaces. It wasn't just some fudged bit of data, it was actual in-the-moment calculations all the time. And it was little details like this, and the movement in the cabinet, and the sound design, and the, the dust and the dirt and the mud squirting up around you, and the faithful replication of the cars, the motion blur that would happen in front of you, all the little details that made Sega Rally feel like real rally driving, even when it very much was not. And I think that left its mark, because pretty soon we had more rally games made in the same spirit. Not just the sequels, but also titles like Colin McRae Rally, which was the, the progenitor to the current Dirt Rally series, and was explicitly inspired by Sega Rally, but which had the guts to double down and go into full simulation mode, one car, one track, one clock, in a stage-by-stage replication of the World Rally Championship, all while still clinging on to that, that idea of giving you the fantasy, giving you the fun, and letting you drive like a maniac and still somehow get to the end. And it's in titles like Gran Turismo, which so lovingly recreated the handling and look and the sounds of its many vehicles, that you couldn't help but admire its dedication to the cause of combining reality with fantasy. Virtual racing would never be the same again. Sega Rally didn't change the genre on its own. It did it with the help of Daytona and Ridge Racer and Colin McRae and Gran Turismo and a whole bunch of games. It was one in a wave of games that revolutionised the genre. But it was the one that I'd say most dared to be different. That dared to go against the grain and defy convention. Because its makers believed that they could make a bigger impact by being better and unique and more fun, and more realistic, rather than just better than the arcade races before. Because they shot for glory. They went for fun and realism together. And they actually pulled it off. Sega Rally Championship. The Life and Times of Video Games is created entirely by me, Richard Moss. 
I do the music, the writing, the editing, the mastering, the the recording, absolutely all of it. If you enjoy the show, I would very much appreciate your support. You can help by sharing your favorite episodes with friends or acquaintances or enemies on social media or email or however you like to share cool things with them. Or you can leave a review in your preferred podcast app or make a donation. I accept one-off donations by paypal.me slash as well as monthly recurring donations on Patreon to lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon backers will also get various perks like bonus interviews and sound bites, research notes, behind-the-scenes info, and the chance to vote on future episode ideas. I'd like to extend a huge thanks to everybody who's been supporting me so far, but especially to my producer-level backers, Wade Trigaskis, Vivek Mohan, Seth Robinson, and Simon Moss. If you'd like to get in touch with me for some reason, you can always email me at richard at lifeandtimes.games or tweet at me at mossrc or tweet at the show at lifeandtimesvg. And as always, you can find show notes and past episodes and everything else related to this thing at the website lifeandtimes.games. Until next time, my name is Richard Moss, and this was the Life and Times of Video Games. Thanks for listening. I'll see ya.